aimions bien tendrement Comme s'aiment tous les amants Et puis un jour tu m'as quitté Depuis je suis désespéré Je te vois partout dans le ciel Je te vois partout sur la terre Tu es ma soie et mon soleil Ma nuit, mes jours, mes aubes crèves Tu es partout car tu es dans mon cœur Tu es partout car tu es mon bonheur Toutes les choses qui sont autour de moi Même la vie ne représente que toi Des fois je rêve que je suis dans tes bras Alors et tu me parles tout bas Tu dis des choses qui font fermer les yeux Et moi je trouve ça merveilleux Hello everybody, this is Oscar Dahm here with Matthew Knudsen for We Like Movies AFI Top 100 Countdown Number 71, Saving Private Ryan And oh boy do we have a special episode because we have a special guest, former Loyola Marymount University student, uh, classmate of Matt and myself at that great institution down in Los Angeles, Mr. Brian Borini. Brian, how's it going, man? It's going well. Thank you for inviting me on. Long time, first time. Well, Matt, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was your idea to invite Brian on, which I obviously welcomed with open arms. It's been a while since I've spoken to the man, but uh, would you like to give a little background on, on what you were thinking? It's, it's threefold why I think Brian needed to be on this particular episode. First and foremost, he has, he has reached out and told me that he's a fan. He's one of a, he's one of a, a small but dedicated uh, group in that regard. And it's been way too long since he and I got a chance to talk movies, which is one of, uh, one of the things we've always been best at over the years. When I was a freshman, when we were all freshmen in college at the aforementioned Loyola Marymount University, I was chatting with this dude very politely one day, and the conversation basically veered into, hey, you like swingers? I like swingers. We should watch swingers. <laughs> and that basically turned into um, not only a lasting friendship, but also kind of a, a little bit of a, an endurance test in terms of how much, how many movies we could watch in one sitting. I've never met somebody who was able to keep up with me the way that Mr. Barini was, which is why I think we worked so well as, uh, as you know, living companions. Uh, although it should be noted that you were passing your classes at that time, whereas I was not. Well, I guess that means that you were more dedicated to uh, the, the pursuit of these movie yeah. marathons than I was. Um, yeah. You were taking it more seriously than That's I was. That's generous of you. And when it comes to Saving Private Ryan, um, Brian, of course, born and raised in the great state of Iowa. Damn right. Uh, James, James Francis Ryan, of course, one of uh, the greatest sons of Iowa in cinematic fiction. And uh, Brian is also the youngest of four siblings, as is James Francis Ryan. So I figured it made a lot of sense for him to come on and talk about this from the context of the fact that he comes from the same place as a fictional character. And yeah, I mean, this is obviously a film that means a lot to people our age, uh, you know, a pretty important text in terms of um, Spielberg fanatics like the three of us. Brian was long overdue to come on this podcast, and I had a eureka moment the other day when we were discussing Spielberg, and it made a lot of sense to invite him on for this particular episode. We've talked about this movie pretty darn recently on our oeuvre series. We didn't 
deep dive into it the way that I would have liked to simply by nature of the fact we were also trying to cover three other films in that episode. I think it's time to really drill down on this film. And there's nobody else I'd rather do so with than you two. All right, cool. Let's start there, Brian. Like, what's your your history with the movie? I mean, when did you see it first? What were your initial reactions? And where did it sort of lie in your, uh, you know, just, just where was it in your pantheon of, of films growing up? So I saw it in theaters that summer. So I would have been 15 years old. July 24th, 1998. Yeah, so 15. And I think like all of us and like a lot of people, this was this huge momentum, you know, Hanks and Spielberg cal- uh, collaboration for the first time. It started getting all this buzz because, you know, all these World War II vets couldn't watch it because it was so gritty and real. And, you know, there were stories. And this was back before I was reading the Internet regularly. And, you know, there were just these rumors and papers about the film production of it. Even in Iowa, we were hearing stories about it. So it was sort of this mega movie that was coming out. Um, Spielberg and Hanks are like at the peak of their game, probably. So hugely looking forward to it. It's funny, as uh, we were talking about doing this pod, I was looking up the history of the I, the fictional Francis, uh, or the uh, Ryan brothers. I remember distinctly all these stories in the local Iowa papers about like, oh, it you know has this setting in Iowa, and there are these Iowa brothers. And for some reason in my memory, I thought it was real, that they were real people, and I was trying to look it up. Sort of based on these brothers from the Civil War, I guess. And so I don't know if like I just misremembered it at the time, but I remember it was a huge deal. The Ryans, I believe, are based on the Fighting Sullivans. Um, the Sullivan, there's a movie called The Fighting Sullivans, came out in 1944, and the research that I did says they were from Waterloo. Yes, yeah, see, I, I was trying to find that, and I, I saw that some brothers that all died in the Civil War, that the the letter that the uh, you know the Secretary of War, whoever it is, quotes, uh, was referring to. But okay, so I'm not crazy. So it is a real the Sullivan brothers. This is a real thing. They actually mention them in the movie. I think I think Harvey Harv Presnell actually mentions them at one point. The Sullivans, um, George Thomas, Frank Henry, Joseph Eugene, Matt Abel, Al Leo. Oh, there's five of them. Uh, hometown Waterloo, Iowa. They also had a sister named Genevieve. And then they didn't die. They just all went to war together. Is that their story? No, no. I think I think they all died. I think that's I think that's the issue. Is that, like that's why this this Ryan thing is is such a big sort of point of contention and why these guys jump at the opportunity to save him because in in the context of saving private ryan the sullivans actually exist in that reality and so because they all died uh the united states army is not going to let that happen again well there's your iowa expertise coming in from matt Knudsen. Um, <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm literally like just looking at a, at a Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, but yeah so anyway uh, short answer yes I, I saw this when it came out probably saw it two times in theaters Six or eight months later, when it lost the Oscar to Shakespeare in Love, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, uh, was furious and have never forgiven Gwyneth Paltrow or Harvey Weinstein <laughs> or the either of the Fines brothers. You you blame Ray, Ray Fines as yeah. well as Joseph. He knows what he did. <laughs> I definitely saw it two, three, four times in the theater, um, and you know I I saw it at City Center, the old City Center theater in Seattle, which is no longer with us. I think the two movies I ever saw there were. Uh, Saving Private Ryan and the Flintstones. So, <laughs> fun fact. That's a double feature. Or? <laughs> yeah, double feature. I just, you know, I had to I had to come down after Private Ryan. That's um, the one where Halle Berry plays Sharon Stone, right? Is that her character's name? I believe name? that's her character's name. God damn it. Never man. forget. Is that like supposed, it's supposed to be a joke? Just supposed to be funny, right? <laughs> well, I think it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Whether or not it succeeds at that aim is, is up to you. And I, I do remember... 
you know, as a burgeoning hot take artist uh, <laughs> in my younger days, I remember telling anyone who would listen that, well, actually, guys, Thin Red Line is a better movie. Than <laughs> <Super> <laughs> <Red Ride." laughs> one of those <laughs> guys. One, definitely one of those guys. I, as a matter of fact, I remember you. I remember you <laughs> sort of delivering that hot take when we were in high school because we definitely yeah. talked about this. I'm trying to remember what class we were in, but it did come up, and there was also a teacher who corroborated that opinion. Who believed oh. that as well? And she, I can't remember her name, but I remember specifically you bringing it up. She agreed, and then her issue was with was with the framing device, which okay. we mm. might as well get into first and foremost, since it is the very first thing that happens in the movie. And we could just rip that bandaid off and talk about it right now. You know, that was my first note. Here is maybe it's just the times we live in now, um, but the uber sort of patriotism, the two shots of flags within you know forty five seconds of each other or whatever at the very beginning of the movie. Seems a little, you know, ham-fisted to me. I, you know, I think I brought this up last time we spoke, but it, it's pretty clear to me that Spielberg is going for a, a blatant fake out with trying to tell us that this man is Tom Hanks. And I'm not, sh- I'm not sure I love that part. I don't think it's very necessary. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know why they felt the need to try to sort of deke the audience there. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely remember thinking that the first time I saw it in theaters. This is Tom Hanks, and then, spoiler alert, when he dies at the end, thinking, well, he can't die, because that's him. We've seen him, you know, 50 years later. So, definitely, you know, it tricked me at the time. Looking back and revisiting it this time, um, I was watching it with um, my wife, Susie, who had amazingly never seen the whole thing. And as we're watching it at the beginning, she's saying to me, is that Tom Hanks? Is, is that Tom Hanks? Is that Tom Hanks right there? I'm like, just watch the movie. <laughs> Which, so, I, th- I think there is still some value to it. I mean, I hear you, it's a little you know, maybe cheesy or sort of over the top. But um, I think for for a first-time viewer, I think it is really effective. You need a little bit of foreplay, for lack of a better term, in terms of getting... Because what's going to happen first and foremost in the, you know, diegesis of this war narrative is going to be pretty damn jarring and pretty damn disturbing. It gets very, very melodramatic on the back end. So... Maybe it is necessary to have some kind of framing device to, you know, dip your toe into the proverbial hot tub. Um, mixing my metaphors, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it's it's rough. It, it's it's rough. It's not a deal breaker, but it's rough. And I understand why it really, really bumps people and keeps them from absolutely loving this because it is a little bit of Spielberg indulging some of his worst impulses, right? Yeah, it's schmaltzy, but I mean, it does. It does have sort of a narrative necessity, which I think Brian was was bringing up, and more so in that you sort of need the ending to justify the mission, right? right? Otherwise, the movie uh, ends, I mean, if there's no framework here, it it ends in a much more grim way, right? If you don't realize that, oh, he's lived a a nice life with grandkids and kids and his wife is is proud of him still or whatever, you kind of need that to sort of have a a glimmer of hope and and feel good about the whole enterprise. I I bet the ending would feel just a little more, yeah, like a little more grim, a little more shallow. A little more gutting. It it also um, gives a woman a chance to give a line on screen, which I think is the only (laughs) line that a woman has at the very end. Yes, not counting the little girl in the French village, who you're right might be the only other female character in the movie, except for the ones who are uh, typing the Dear John letters. Yeah, it also allows us to see the cemetery in all of its glory, uh, which is important because it really drives it drives that point home. Uh, I visited that cemetery. It's in Normandy. It's absolutely beautiful. It's overwhelming. My grandfather's buried there. 
I uh, recommend anybody who's traveling in northern France to try and check it out because it really is quite beautiful. And the idea that you could actually shoot something there and shoot around those graves is crazy to me. Only somebody with Spielberg's pull, I think, could have gotten away with that because it is really like a very hallowed place and they wouldn't even allow me to like put like flowers on my grandfather's grave when I was there because they keep everything very very uniform right Um, as a matter of fact I think it is it's duly controlled by both the United States government and the French government I'm sure it's a bureaucratic nightmare but they managed to shoot there and the scenes are like the visuals are quite staggering Uh, just I don't know the old guy kind of dropping to his knees and bursting into tears and then too much exposition on the back end you know like Tell me I've tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. It's just it, it's driving it home a, a, a little much for this podcaster. I got a hot take or a question for you. What Please. if that had been Damon in old man makeup and costume? Would that <laughs> would that have been extremely frowned upon, or would he have gotten like an Oscar nom for that? Um, well, I mean that's an alternate reality. We'll never know the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I completely buy that actor as Damon, by yes, the way. Like, yeah. I, I, he does when, look like him, for sure. Yeah, and the morph the morph is incredible. <laughs> I mean, you know, only somebody like again, somebody like Spielberg can have um can have industrial light and magic do a morph like that in this kind of film. Um so anyway, don't want to harp on it, but it is it's always a problem for me, those 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 frames. But uh, but they're you know, they're not robust. You get past them pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean I I think it's just the the main thing that's the issue is is like it's just the contrast of the sort of Spielberg schmaltz going right into sort of the right. brute force reality yeah of of the storming the beach sequence right which is as sort of you know, real and grounded as Spielberg gets and yeah it's 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 very jarring and you know for something that was going to be jarring anyway it, it's 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 a little odd but let's talk about the the storming the beach sequence it for for me watching it again it clocks in a little over twenty minutes. It, it holds up pretty freaking well. I mean, it, it, it nothing nothing seems dated about it. Nothing's it, it's so technically just incredible. Um, you guys have any takeaways about that that storming the beach sequence? Like anything that's sort of changed in your memory since when you when you first saw it to now? No, I agree. It totally holds up. Um, yeah, in 20 minutes, I remember at the time thinking there's this long intro scene, and then when I was rewatching it, prepared for it, and it just flies by. I mean, it's so engrossing. And you're right there with them. So it's, it's you know, in true Spielberg fashion, it's like, I did think that um, uh, one thing that I thought was odd was Giovanni Ribisi, and he kind of does this throughout. He's like so traumatized by everybody's death, and he's the medic. He's always like, no, damn it, not you. <laughs> he's really playing it over the top, and you're the medic, dude. This Like, haven't you already seen dozens or hundreds of people die? And like, right. Especially that, that that one scene, which is like sort of weirdly played for laughs a little bit, where it's like he's trying to save this guy who's just about to die, and like he's he's wailing over it, where there's like limbs flying behind him. There's other people to save. And it's like, oh, we we finally maybe have stabilized him, then he gets shot in the head, right? Like that's sort of like a comedic beat that that doesn't really that doesn't ruin it, and there there aren't really many false tones like that. But yeah, Giovanni is a. Uh, He's kind of over the top. Throughout. Yeah, we should definitely do a performance review of this cast at some point <laughs> in this conversation because this cast is fucking fascinating. Um, there's a lot of that macabre sort of comedy going on throughout this movie, but especially in that opening 20 minutes. I mean, there's the guy who gets shot. He, he, he A bullet bounces off his helmet. He takes the helmet off, then he immediately takes one to the forehead, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is Which is really disturbing, but also like you, you can't escape the irony of it. 
And yeah. um, this is Spielberg. He gets into that territory in this much more so than anything he had done up to this point, including even um, Schindler's List. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. you're, I think you're exactly right that like the jarring contrast between one of the schmaltziest openings he's ever done and then probably still the most violent sequence he's ever constructed. I'd say not, not that we necessarily need to litigate this, but this sequence is probably more just pound for pound graphic than anything that happens in Schindler's List. Oh, you know? for sure. Yeah. You yeah. know, like yeah. it's just it's it's just overwhelmingly kind of intense. The guys running, the guys who are um, engulfed in flames and then are running out oh, of yeah. the carrier to like roll around in the um, in the water to put themselves out, and the, the guy, the guy did, walking around with his limb, exactly, yeah. yeah. That, I remember, the, I can't remember who wrote this article, but one of the very first reviews I ever read of the film, the morning before I saw it, that was the very first sentence in the review was: "There's a man standing on a beach in France. He's searching for something. We don't know what it is. Then he bends down and picks it up. It's his arm, and then he runs out of frame." And I was like, "Yeah, that is a pretty damn indelible image." And and I mean that image. Is, is become iconic and it's imitated like both in parody and also in sort of um, in homage and just the whole style. I mean, this, you know, I'm sure you can speak to what it is technically, but like the, the chopped frames and sort of the, the newsreel-esque footage of it, um, it's become so, you know, Saving Private Ryan, you know, in quotes. Yeah, it's a meme. Yeah, it's a meme. And it still doesn't lose its effectiveness to what Oscar was saying 20 years later. Um, it feels fresh. It feels, you know, excellent filmmaking and not sort of cliched which is saying something because it is sort of a cliche at this point well it throws into sharp relief while you're watching it the fact that nobody else has been able to achieve this right like many have tried no one has really achieved it at this level i was gonna say even he hasn't you know i was watching like empire of the sun and some of the other you know period pieces 1941 uh, as well, and like the action scenes look absolutely nothing like this. They look like traditional Hollywood, you know, some snipers up on a building shooting, and it, it's nothing at all like this. Um, so it's, yeah, hugely forward for him as well. Yeah, yeah. I just mean that like so many filmmakers have tried to do, you know, Greengrass or whoever have like kind of adopted a style. Even Catherine Bigelow to a lesser extent, but I don't think anybody has been able to to do it so as artfully as he does here. Like. All the handheld stuff never feels, you know, like it never makes you nauseous in the way that I'll let lesser filmmakers tend to. Yeah, and, and the impressive part of this whole sequence, too, is, you know, while it is handheld and claustrophobic and, you know, uh, chopped at times, you still have a great sense of the geography and the uh, and the mission and the progression of, of where they're going up the beach the entire time, um, which is you know, insanely impressive. I mean, I think we talk about this a lot, Matt, but like, you know, the best action sequences, you understand where you are in this world. You understand, you know, the stakes and, and who's where and who's doing what. Um, and it's not sort of green grassily confusing. <laughs> um, like other stuff can be right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Brian, you know, he mentioned the technical stuff, a leap forward for Janusz Kaminski as well. Like he and Spielberg are already starting to kind of experiment with things and just like all the bleach bypass stuff which is something they get really into in terms of like allowing their light sources to really bloom they kind of push it to the extreme and an ai and um, minority report a couple years later but this is when they're really starting to fuck with it and adjusting the um it's actually the shutter angle on the camera that adds that staccato stuff and then it also causes the light sources to sort of uh to sort of streak vertically 
And that's something that Soderbergh starts messing with as well in uh, in something like the Limey a year later. And, and this stuff all becomes very en vogue uh, in the early 21st century. But at the time, it was very kind of revolutionary. And for a guy who I think as a filmmaker who everybody had sort of, they kind of felt like they'd had Spielberg figured out by the end of the 20th century. Like, you know, we get it. We know what he's about. He's he's broken ground with Schindler's List, but we kind of get his deal. I think he still proved that he had places he could grow, things he could say, things he could try. Um, and to do to do them on, at, like, at this scale, on this level, uh, I think it really, really, uh, you know, got under people's skin. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to note that, you know, we've had 20 years since this movie now, and like you said, a lot of imitators and people, you know, trying to do the same thing, it became in vogue. Um, and I think that's part of why seeing this now, like, I, I, I obviously appreciate and, and just love how technically proficient it is and how much it holds up. But at the time, it was far more holy shit. Like, this is not something I've seen before. Like, I remember that sequence being just completely exhilarating and exciting and just it was sort of mind-blowing at the time. Um, it's not that way anymore, but... You know, I, I think we have to give credit where credit's due to, to Spielberg for sort of blowing the lid off that thing. I, we, we mentioned this and we talked about Schindler's List a few months back, but you really can't say enough about the guy's capacity to entertain. Anybody can just shake the camera or show you a lot of graphic violence or just overload you with bullets, you know, with bullet sounds in the theater. Like anybody can just make it intense and graphic and overwhelming and bloody. And, you know, like anybody can just sort of throw so much at you that you have to look away from the screen. It takes a lot of skill to be able to make, you know, to be as inventive and entertaining as Spielberg is and stuff like this. And I always maintain that really the genius of Schindler's List lies in the fact that while when there's harrowing, disturbing stuff going on on screen, that three-hour movie never stops being an entertaining movie, uh, which is why I think it works. And this, uh, this is no different. I mean, even as you're looking at things that you kind of wish you could unsee, it's still an unbelievably exciting action sequence. Like, not to the point where it is uh, exhibitionist necessarily, or, you know, not respecting the things that it's trying to portray, but it never stops being, I'm not going to use the word fun, but certainly just like, in, just exciting, invigorating. Well, all right. Sh- shall we? Uh, shall we move on from there? Um, after that, we get the we get the mission, which is uh, sort of the the crux of the rest of the movie. And I remember last time we spoke, Matt, I did sort of take a little bit of umbrage just on the idea of the of of picking up the fourth Ryan and whether that's whether that's a noble pursuit or not, and whether it is or isn't, if that matters for the narrative of the movie and that's still something I do kind of grapple with and I I think I'm a little more positive about it uh, after this last viewing than I was uh, last time we spoke. I mean do you guys take issue at all with just the general idea of sending these guys out to pick up you know the fourth brother or or is that something that just you know doesn't bother you in the least? You want to speak to that youngest uh, of four siblings? (laughs) As an Iowan I would leave no Iowan behind. (laughs) <laughs> in battle so 100 percent support um i think you know like all great movies it presents a great sort of philosophical question you know and it's like classic ethics is it worth risking the lives of these seven to go save this one you know i don't take issue with the conceit of the movie because i love that it presents it it vilifies itself by having him you know live and have you know they do get to rescue him and they do get to sort of uh, he lives a good life and has these, you know, children and grandchildren and everything like that. So it sort of has this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling at the end. 
um, even though it's all about sacrifice and you know what you do for your fellow countrymen. I think it would be very interesting if they never find him. You know, if it's sort of like a MacGuffin and they go and they look for him and they just all end up dying and getting killed and then it's sort of a little bleaker and it's was this worth it of course not because these seven guys died and the guy didn't get anywhere i think that the movie posits affirmative take on it that it is worth it you know when tom hanks gives his speech which i think is my favorite scene in the movie of you know if this saving private ryan is my mission home to my wife then i'm gonna do it so i think yeah i i don't have a problem with it i think that the movie affirms it um but i think it posits like an excellent question which all great films should do I can't help but remember uh, the various parodies that came out in late 1998, including uh, Saving Ryan's Privates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's, where it's about, <laughs> about a mission to retrieve uh, Ryan's genitalia that has been lost behind. Did they find him? Did they get it? What happened in the end of that I'm one? I'm not going to ruin it for you, dude. You got to go look it for No, you were making a very salient point, and then I made it weird. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can't help but think about, speaking of alternate realities, you know, if you were to have flip-flopped these projects and given you know, thin red line to Steven Spielberg and then given Saving Private Ryan to Terrence Malick. If Malick would have, you know, obviously there would have been a lot more twirling and people uh, speaking, you know, o- o- like narrating poems in voiceover. Oh, but... man, that would have been awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'd, you I'd, know what? I'd watch that in movie. fact, they, they both should have made both movies. Right. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it asks a really interesting philosophical question. It gives you precedent because it, it, it like gives you this the idea about this Sullivan Brothers backstory. So it's not without precedent. And, uh, you know, Harv Presnell delivers a really great monologue. He reads that Lincoln letter. And how can you not sort of... <laughs> How can you not be on board after you've heard that, right? Yeah. Litigates it, you know, then the movie questions it for the rest of the running time. Like, that's kind of Edward Burns' utility, right? Edward mm-hmm. Burns is in this movie to constantly exactly. be questioning the mission. Yeah, and, and I guess by the end of it, you're left to think, well, you know, if if they don't go on this mission, Private Ryan probably dies. But if they don't go on the mission, most of those guys maybe live. Who knows? I buy it more after Tom Hanks' speech than I do um, with the back home uh, sort of, uh, you know, reading the Lincoln letter stuff. I, I do wonder if what the effect on the film would be if they were more cynical uh, about the reasons why they want to retrieve Private Ryan. And I mean, this should be, it would be bad PR if our all four brothers died. Like, I don't care how we do it or, or, or why we do it. We just need them back. Do you know what I'm saying? But don't they say that? Yeah, I think he even says that we're going on a PR mission, right? The music swells and he reads that Lincoln letter right. and it feels like a noble thing. You know? Right. He, he's got the letter mes- uh, memorized and he just puts it down and starts reading and pushing it down. Yeah, it gets... <laughs> that's a great Spielberg can't help Spielberg, himself. Spielberg moment. I love it. I, <laughs> I think that's also a good time to bring up the score, which I think is a whole separate subtopic. Think of John Williams and their scores and how iconic they all are. You know, let's all hum the theme to Saving Private Ryan together. <laughs> it's it's so interesting that there's such little music in this film, which is, you know, obviously intentional. You know, sometimes it's really powerful and sometimes it's just Spielberg and hokey. Like Hanks first gets to the top of the Normandy beach and you pan out. You finally see all the ships coming and all the sort of disaster and everything. And that's when I think the music cues up for the first time since Normandy starts. You know, that's very powerful and overwhelming. And then you have the other side of it where the guy's reading the Lincoln letter and it's like, wah, wah, Spielberg. No offense, John Williams. Yeah, no, no it's, it's, I think it's a really good point. I mean, the, the big sort of like sweeping melodic theme for the movie doesn't even really kick in until the end credits. 
I mean, that's when like that's when John Williams really like fucking, you know, opens it up. Um, but yeah, the movie is it's pretty darn disciplined for a Spielberg movie in, in regard to the soundtrack. I mean, they clearly were intentional in terms of how whenever there's a battle sequence, there's never any music playing at, at the very least. Um, all right. So once we leave the beach and go on our mission, we meet a uh, procession of guest stars in this movie. <laughs> and, you know, we go from what Dennis Farina to... Ted Dance into Paul Giamatti to Nathan Fillion. But can we just spend one second on Paul Giamatti and like, please? Was he totally inappropriately cast in that role? I felt like it, it was like a parody. Like, well, we're screwed over here. Come on, guys! And like, just watching him <laughs> run, I was like, did they have to teach him to run for this film? <laughs> if there's one thing you say about Paul Giamatti is that he cannot not be Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll say the, the one the one guest thing that kind of takes me out of it every time is Ted Danson. Yeah, and I love freaking Ted Danson, but he just, it just doesn't seem right for some <laughs> yeah. reason. Like he he should be wearing a suit or he should be Sam like, Malone. The hell are yeah, you doing Malone here? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. It, it does strike me as like Spielberg was at a cocktail party or he was at some <laughs> sort of you know the governor's awards. I'm like I, he had to have just run into him at some point and been like, hey some sort of weird knee jerk like oh I, was, I saw ted dancing last week we're still trying to cast this part i'll call him right now because he is he is distracting like ted dancing is not <laughs> a movie star and i don't mean that to discount the guy's acting chops or anything but he is just such a television personality and so specific to that one role that he's famous for that it's just it's incredibly jarring when he pops up i don't think he's bad in this part he's fine from a performance yeah. standpoint but it is it it does bum me every single time and and also they they clearly go to such effort to cast you know Hanks as the everyman even though he's the biggest star in the world all the other guys Vin Diesel Barry Pepper look like people from the period and they look like real people so it's just such a contrast too in terms of Hanks and obviously we'll we'll continue to talk about Hank, Hanks how can you not he's the star of the movie I really you just can't give Hanks enough credit for underplaying this thing and kind of I mean it it really is an ensemble and I think a lot of it has to do with Hanks's sort of like performance decisions. And the fact that he's one of the biggest movie stars in the world and yet manages to completely disappear into this very understated. Yeah, and, and I, I was thinking about this while watching it today, which I think this is a screenplay thing, so credit to uh, Robert Rodat, if that's how you say his name. Um, if that is, is your real name. Yeah, uh, he. I, I think he's allowed to get away with the understatedness because we see the mirror effect of his troop and how much they clearly respect him, right? Like, he doesn't spend the, any time in this movie earning their respect because he already has it. So once once that becomes clear, I think it's easier for him to sort of lay into the role, which is kind of interesting and maybe not the, your your typical sort of arc for for one of these troop leaders in a in, in a movie like this. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. The fact that his character is basically reflected to us by the ways that all of his guys talk about him or respect him or question him even. Mm-hmm. Without knowing anything about him, that's like the main descriptor or whatever characteristic of him is that nobody knows anything about him. Yeah, yeah and and then the whole teacher thing is, yeah. maybe that's just me, but it, it's heavily implied that he doesn't want to say that because he think it might, he thinks it might undermine his authority that it's just some, that he's just a teacher. I was going to say, I read it as he doesn't want to merge his two lives. He, he wants to keep himself and his wife and his teacher life at home in Pennsylvania or wherever, and that he's not that person. Yeah, yeah, because when, when uh, Damon brings it up later, he rolls his eyes when he's asked if he's a teacher or not, and then when, when Damon wants to hear about his wife and the gardening gloves, mm-hmm. and the, you know, he says, nope, keeping that one for me. I, I got to compartmentalize, right? 
Which death is more harrowing, Vin Diesel's or Giovanni Ribisi's? Uh, what about Goldberg? Oh, Goldberg. Yeah, I mean, that's the... <laughs> the terrifying German game. telling you, shh, shh. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty brutal. Vin Diesel is great in this movie, right? I mean, I know Vin Diesel's become something of a punchline, but he's pretty fantastic in this movie. I mean, you, you never really... He's not distracting, I will say that, even in retrospect. He's got like 10 lines, I mean, to yeah. be fair. But yes, he, he does, and he's got that, that great voice. And, yeah. Uh, he hadn't been in anything before this, right? I think he had directed a short film that he starred in that got Spielberg's attention. So I think it was one of those kind of like Eric Bana situations where he was just like this guy who was doing his own thing, making his own films. Somehow it ended up on Spielberg's desk and he cast him. Based, But yes, to, uh, long story short, I do think that this was basically his first feature. Was the uh, Brooklyn, New York, USA sticker on the back of Ed Burns' <laughs> coat necessary for his character, do you think? I, I, I'm guessing Ed Burns just did that, and that Spielberg was like, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, how do we feel about Ed, Edward Burns? Edward Burns is second build in this movie. That's a big yeah, I mean, he was hot. He was, he was the indie king of the time, right? Yeah. He was the, the next big thing. Hot off Brothers McMullen. Yeah. Yep. yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, another guy like Vin Diesel, I mean, the story with Edward Burns that he was just like, he couldn't get cast in anything, and nobody would give him a meeting, so he's like, fuck it, I'll go make my own movie. And then he famously like gave Robert Redford a VHS tape of it when he saw it, when he just ran into him in an elevator or something, gave him a tape. Redford ended up watching it, lets him into Sundance. Then the movie ends up winning the audience award at Sundance and the rest is history. But this was the Edward Burns moment. This is this is it. This is he was hot for a second. He was never this hot again. Right. I have a pretty straightforward take in that he's totally necessary. I think you were talking about this earlier that he sort of is the voice of the, you know, uh, we shouldn't be on this he's mission, so you need that. Yeah, so and I think he's great at that, um, and the Brooklyn thing too. You know, you you want somebody from every part of the country or whatever. But I think, as sort of a, a side note here, that the real unsung hero is Tom Sizemore. Can we give it up for heroin addict Tom Sizemore just crushing it in this movie? Yeah, yeah, he's he's awesome, and it's a great character. Sort of just the no nonsense uh, guy you can always rely on, and obviously great in battle. Um, I thought you were going to say Jeremy Davies because yeah. every time I watch this movie, I, I'm like, holy shit, this guy is uh, super interesting and maybe the most, not that any of these characters are too cliche, but non-cliche character in my mind. And the, and like, there's nothing more heart-wrenching than him you know, listening to Goldberg die upstairs in, in that scene. It's the worst. He kind of chews the scenery a little too much. I agree. He's probably the most interesting character because he's like the one dynamic character in the whole movie. But yeah, I have some issues with his character towards the end. I think I think Sizemore just he's like Hanks. He's very understated. You know, he's the sort of position player that's keeping it all kind of together. I agree with everything you guys said. I love both of them. I do think that Davies comes close to being a little to being distractingly squirrely. Um, but I do like him a lot. I have, I have so much affection for Jeremy Davies, and I think he's fantastic in this movie. And I would have Oscar nominated both he and Sizemore for supporting actor because because uh, you're right, Sizemore. Just so underrated because his personal life has obviously long since sort of overwhelmed his professional life. But you look at what he was doing, you know, from even Point Break to Heat to something like this. I mean, he was really rocking and rolling in the 1990s as one of the great sporting actors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's 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 phenomenal in this. I mean, his exchanges with Hanks, I completely buy that relationship. And those are some of my favorite moments in the movie. I was going to say, just on a personal level, what Tom Hanks and Tom Sizemore's relationship is probably like. Yeah, you do always wonder with these guys, it's like, okay, were they were they just sober long enough to make something like, like, 
is he going back to his hotel at the end of the night, slamming heroin and then showing up to, or, you know, speed or whatever he was doing and then just showing up to set the next day? Or is he like, okay, I'm in a Spielberg movie, Tom Hanks in this fucking, I'm not going to screw this up. I'm going to, I'm going to stay clean at least for the, you know, the length of production. I always wonder about this stuff. Like, is this, is it just these guys sort of proving that they can man up for three months or are they still living the lifestyle and out there partying every night and still managing to turn in an incredible performance like this? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, he might be slamming pints at the at the pub after after shooting every day. I think it's on the IMDb trivia or somewhere that he Spielberg was drug testing Sizemore every day. Interesting. Okay. Well, I I think he was I think he made the right decision in in terms of casting him because he is he's one of my favorite characters in the movie and I do think he's one of the strongest performances. I mean, it's a it's an incredible ensemble filled with a lot of really great performances and he's a standout for me as well. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing about the the middle portion of this movie is that with other filmmakers with other scripts it could have easily dragged in between you know storming of the beach and the in the final uh, final battle with with Private Ryan, but. The pacing of of having you know really tense standoffs and you know uh, showdowns, whether it's with uh, you know the German dude at the satellite, or you know Rabisi's scene or Vin Diesel's scene, like those tense moments are sprinkled in at sort of exactly the right times throughout this movie that it never feels like it drags too much. Um, and then there's you know nice nice downtime in between, so we get a little time to breathe. Um, you know, anything about the pacing strike you guys uh, throughout the movie? I, I, again, I just think Spielberg has like a preternatural ability with keeping his films entertaining. And when he loses that, you end up with something like uh, The Lost World, right? Where like all of a sudden the pacing is completely off and he just doesn't seem to have a grasp on it. But when he's on, there's nobody better in terms of keeping something, you know, in terms of a, a, an entertainment level sustain for the length of the film. And this is not a short movie. This is a two hour and 40 minute movie, I think. Yeah, it, I don't think it ever drags. I never get bored. I never look at my watch. And they do dole out the deaths, which are inevitable, at a pretty good clip. Diesel goes first. And then the aforementioned Rabisi is a big turning point. That might be even that might even be the halfway point of the film. That's that death or that kind of, um, you know, the loss of that character is especially it hits especially hard because you've set sort of like his emotional state in that scene in the um, in the church. Um, Brian and I were talking about this the other day, how Rabisi really chews the scenery in this movie. You had mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that scene on the beach where he just is incensed by the, the fact that he had to witness another death. I think that scene in the church is really interesting because it's clearly Rubisi being like, all right, I'm going to fucking dig into this thing. Like this is, this is, <laughs> this is Giovanni's time to shine. Right. <laughs> is it, is it proof that I think it can go either way. Is it proof that he's a great actor and that he's actually making a lot of interesting choices in this movie? Or is it proof that he's the one who's closest to going over the top in this film? Um, I don't know. Like I, I'm fine with Rubisi. He's kind of, he is always Giovanni Ribisi to me. You know, he never really disappears <laughs> into a character. Um, and by nature of being Giovanni, Giovanni Ribisi, he's going to be over the top, right? Um, and so in that regard, I guess he probably goes at the at, at the right time. And, you know, I, I think that, like I said, that whole midpoint scene and that whole, uh, you know, the satellite and the German guy, I mean, that's such an important and, and like, clever sequence because – you know, that idea of like, we don't have to do this. It's not necessary, but let's do it. It's good for the overall mission. Like it's kind of a microcosm of the Private Ryan mission in and of itself and then becomes a referendum on that to Ed Burns' character specifically. 
and going through that whole thing and then just seeing Tom Hanks' leadership throughout and his ability to, you know, bring everyone together and his, his diplomatic skills, you know, it, it really strengthens the, the, the core of the film in a way where you're ready to sort of, you know, go down with him to the, to the final battle. I, I agree 100%. I think it's, yeah, the emotional core, sort of like the crux of the movie where it's, they talk explicitly about the mission and going home and all that stuff. But I, I do think Rubisi's going to Rubisi. And like, the, <laughs> does, doesn't he even call out like, mama, mama, when he's dying? Yeah, yeah like, 100%. What, is, is that a little coda to your speech earlier, bud? Like, remember guys? Hey, hey, Academy, you remember what I was saying earlier in the church? I was joking with Brian last week that that, that scene is really like it's the quintessential like young inexperienced actor showing up for his first audition and like what's your monologue going to be i'm going to do the giovanni rabisi church scene from save it private ryan <laughs> and that that said though as a 15 year old boy like that was very moving you know as a 35 year old man it was a little over the top but it, it hit me the first time absolutely and i think it was also like sitting there watching this i was like wow this is different for a spielberg movie like this feels this feels a little bit more this really feels like he's trying something like at this point Spielberg wasn't thought of as a as an actor's director it's weird to think about it but the only performance from a Spielberg movie that has ever won an Oscar is Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln and so he wasn't really thought of as a guy who can just kind of like point the camera at an actor and let them do their thing and and yeah I, I did find it I remember vividly thinking to myself like wow I've never seen Spielberg really linger on a character doing something like this before and and I think the camera's not really moving or doing this sort of panning or pushing anything i think it's just a steady shot on rubisi isn't it just like let him do his thing or something yeah we finally meet private ryan and uh obviously big moment in the movie and it struck me watching this time that you know matt damon had just filmed goodwill hunting right or had goodwill hunting even come out by the time this came out yeah goodwill hunting was december of 97 yeah, okay so yes but this would have been the follow-up i don't think round i, th- I think rounders is later in 98 right isn't rounders so, like fall of 98 i think this and armageddon came out like right around the same time if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. it was like affleck is doing this shit and Matt Damon do it. You know? I think they came out within weeks of each other. Yeah. Um, I think Armageddon was an early July. I think Armageddon was like a July 4th movie. This was the 24th of July. Those are the two highest grossing films of 98 in that order. Saving Private Ryan and then Armageddon. So not insignificant Point that Damon. Damon and Affleck. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. Point Damon. Although although I'll tell you what. Then Affleck makes Shakespeare in Love. And then Shakespeare in Love beats this for... Uh, you had to bring picture, it up right? again, so motherfucker. Point Affleck. And Affleck is Affleck in Shakespeare in Love. He's fun. So Matt Damon in the scene, like, you really have to nail this scene, right? Like, you have to set up a roadblock for the mission. You have to have him be likable and sort of gain the respect of the troop, not have them hate him and sort of the rest of the people on his side. Damon nails it and Robert Rodat nails it. Dude's a movie star. When Burns goes, hey, asshole, somewhere guys died. <laughs> It's yeah. that that's a great exchange where he like he takes a couple steps closer and like he repeats the name. But even that aside, he just looks like he's sort of younger. He's new to all this. Everybody else has kind of been around. This is an anointment to be in a movie in the in the titular role. And I love Hanks's reaction when he after Damon delivers that speech about tell my mother when you found me I was here and I was with the only brothers I have left. There's no way I'm leaving this bridge. And just Hanks is very just understated reaction. Just he just nods like yeah, just like all right. <laughs> does does I'm anybody argue with that? Does anybody nod their head better than Tom Hanks? Tom <laughs> Hanks is an amazing head nodder. Oh, you just gave me a great idea for a super cut. Yes. Oh, no. Please do. Now I know. And now I know what I'm doing with my Christmas vacation. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
Um, and then he and Sizemore go, and they have one of my favorite conversations in the whole movie where Sizemore drops the name of the film, which usually lands with a fucking thud, but <laughs> he, he manages to get away with it here. Yeah, and, and then, you know, the final battle, you know, I, I kind of like it even more at this point than the uh, Storming of the Beach. Really fun, really tactical, you know, heartbreaking at times, and, you know, we, we see our, our heroes sort of get picked off one by one. Until we only have Private Ryan left, yeah, it's it's just it's it's grim and violent, and it's a lot of different kinds of battle. You know, I, I was watching this and I was thinking of that horrible movie Fury and the yeah. way tanks were used <laughs> in that movie and how just trash uh, every single scene in that pile of garbage <laughs> film was. The yeah, the technical proficiency, just the geography again, everyone having different different business to attend to, all in a losing effort, yet heroic all the same. It's just some more Spielberg magic. A- after, you know, reading that they built the set, so that whole thing is a big set piece, I watched it a couple times, you know, run up to this podcast, and the second time, it's like you can actually tell this is a set. This is a pretty small, there's like one little street and one little bridge and some kind of like little side streets that are like half streets so it does feel kind of claustrophobic both intentional and just sort of by virtue of the fact that it is a set as you said like contrasting it with the opening scene the opening scene is so creating a world there's the beach and then the sand and then up to the top of the the hill so you can see the whole thing and this just feels a little movie set-ish doesn't really feel like authentic war footage like the opening does that's interesting yeah i mean it's definitely much more traditional there's a tension in the opening sequence in terms of spielberg's approach where you're, you're watching everything and yourself wow like he's doing something i've never seen him do like you can see him sort of like discovering it as he's directing it and he famously you know didn't do any storyboards for that opening sequence and it feels more revolutionary because it feels like there's actually like some new ground being covered here stylistically the climactic battle scene definitely feels much more traditional feels like him very much in his wheelhouse Mm -hmm. and maybe playing some of the greatest hits but i do still get really really invested in it i find it to be very very exciting and it's just yeah from a from a technical standpoint i don't know it's 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 incredible to see him just play in this environment and give each and every member of this sequence kind of their due like every single member of the team kind of gets their moment as mentioned earlier goldberg gets the dubious honor of having far and away the most harrowing death in the entire movie considering what we've seen up to this point the fact that that might be the most disturbing moment in the movie and it happens to of all people adam goldberg who i I think at this point we sort of all thought of as kind of like a comedic character actor right was he most famous for at this point being on friends or was friends after this Days and Confused, maybe. Days and Confused, yeah. sure. Where he's a, where he's a comic character, right? I just sorry, I just want to jump on that real fast, like, and we can maybe talk about the Jeremy Davies thing. But when Goldberg is getting killed and Jeremy Davies is outside, do we think it's believable when the German comes out and he sees him crying there that like he doesn't kill him, like he just thinks of him as like not a soldier or something? Like I, I don't really buy that. Like the guy's calm and collected, and he just kind of walks out. It's like he just got out of the gym and he's like, oh hey, what's this dude doing here? All right, I'm gonna go back to war. Yeah, I mean it's not entirely believable, but I, I guess the argument is his murder of Goldberg is just, you know, just as harrowing for not just as harrowing, but pretty harrowing for him and he's he's sort of emotional now and he doesn't need to take down someone who he's deemed clearly not a threat. I'm I'm with you that 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 scene does ring a little bit false, but you know, I'm glad they took pity on Jeremy Davies. <laughs> it dovetails with the the next sort of Jeremy Davies bridge too far, you know, like the next coincidence that happens to Jeremy Davies where he runs into that character of Steamboat Willie. And ends up shooting him. And it feels like another one of these kind of like moral quandaries that the movie wants to leave you with. Like, how do you guys feel about the fact that he executes the guy? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's too late now. Uh, Rubisi's already dead. Adam Goldberg's dead. And he kills Hank. Steamboat Willie shoots. Yes, 
Tom, Tom Hanks. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So is the movie saying that if Jeremy Davies had allowed the execution to happen, or if he hadn't compelled Hanks to save Steamboat Willie's life, that now we would potentially, you know, there'd be at least two members of our team that might still be alive? It, that uh, Yes, it feels like that to me. Yeah, it feels like that. It also just feels like an evolution of Jeremy Davies' character. You know, he's, he starts as more innocent and gets hardened by the horrors of war and... Uh, Start smoking cigarettes. Yeah, smoking cigarettes <laughs> and also just the shame of having let him go in the first place, I think, weighs heavily on him. I, I think that's a, a great point, but that accelerates pretty quickly because like moments before he's on the stairwell weeping, unable to go in and help, you know, his, his fellow soldier, you know, his character arc accelerates, you know, at an exponential rate. And all of a sudden he can do that. So like, at what point has he grown? Is it seeing Steamboat Willie shoot Hanks or just seeing him back in action or something? I don't know. It just feels like there's this natural progression of this character. And then all of a sudden at the end, it just spikes very rapidly and he's like nope i have changed now suddenly within the last couple minutes and does that make him a better person in the long run like i've I've started thinking that like maybe this movie is a prequel to the master and maybe jeremy davies character actually turns into joaquin phoenix's character (laughs) in the master right (laughs) (laughs) like that this is the trauma that joaquin phoenix's character experienced in world war ii and that's why he's so screwed up in the master well no uh joaquin phoenix he was in the pacific theater right i guess he wouldn't oh yeah that's true it couldn't be that then (laughs) (laughs) yeah theory debunked um i i guess the only difference is that jeremy davies going up to save goldberg would have been heroic and you know there's nothing heroic about him shooting a guy with his with his hands up but yeah that's true and it's it's not that movie all right guys so this is where we get at the end of every one of these podcasts does this movie deserve to be on the afi top 100 list does it deserve to be at its rank at number 71 so i i I think yes it does because if only for the first 20 minutes i don't know if the rest of the movie sucked there would be a problem with that case but the rest of the movie is excellent not flawless but it's a very 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 well-made film and the first 20 minutes this that scene should be in the afi top whatever 20 scenes of all time i think so based on just that alone i think it belongs on the list it wasn't on the original list i guess the movie only would have would have been well the original list was before this movie right so it's it would have been impossible the original list was 97 it is a new addition to the list and it is also Spielberg's lowest ranked film on the list so at 71 this is the first Spielberg film we're going to get into on this list there will be at least half a dozen others before the list is over I have a lot of affection for this movie I've seen it many times over the years it was one of the all-time great theatrical experiences ever saw ever had saw it opening day with my dad at Grauman's Chinese Theater it's something I revisit pretty darn often that being said this is not one of my favorite Spielberg films this movie probably doesn't crack my top five Spielbergs. So as a result, I do think it deserves to be on this list, although I think it's a little bit high. And there are other Spielberg movies that are not on this list that I would put, such as something like Empire of the Sun, which I think you just saw for the first time recently, right, Brian? Did you, did you finish it? Not to, not to call you out. I didn't. In fact, I turned it off and watched Raiders. That's interesting because um, this is the last World War II movie Spielberg has made, right? He's never gone back to World War II since making this movie. It's like, Which is it's weird like because he made a bunch before this (laughs) exactly so but this is just him like dropping the mic right like here's here's my final statement about world war ii but i don't think it's his best world war ii movie is it the best war movie ever made i would entertain having that conversation but i think it's an inferior movie to schindler's list raiders and empire of the sun if you just want to talk about the category of World War II movie, is it the is it the best combat movie ever made? Probably. Yeah. But, um, but it's a movie that is has enough flaws that I do have a hard time ranking it amongst his best. Although I like the idea of it being on this list. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about just the 
you know, th- there's entries on this list that are symbolic, right? And if this, you know, I, I think for a good portion of the population, this is the quintessential World War II movie, right? If World War II movies was a family feud category, I think this would be the number one, <laughs> number one hit. We would kick <laughs> ass the three of us on Family Feud. Oh, with Steve yeah. Harvey. In that regard, I, I think it probably should be on the list. I, I think I'm with you, Matt. I, I think it might be you know, 10, 12 spots too high for me. Oscar, you mentioned that when you were a super cool, go-against-the-grain, non-conformist high school student, you thought that uh, The Thin Red Line was a superior film. Do you still feel that way? Have you seen Thin Red Line recently? I haven't watched Thin Red Line in a few years, so I would have to watch that and, and give, give my remarks. I'm, I'm guessing I would feel thinner lines a bit more pretentious i probably won't find it as profound as i did as a 15 year old but point of clarification i was not cool so (laughs) let's make that clear so not cool (laughs) that you were cool though yeah came all the way back around to being cool I don't think anyone whose number one visit website was Ain't It Cool News can't be that cool. <laughs> I think Matt Knudsen might disagree with you. All right, guys, any any final thoughts before we uh, close up shop here? I, I think my only final thought is that um, I know you guys have talked about Munich, and I think, Oscar, you have an affection for it, and Matt, I think you do as well. And I think this, compared to Munich, is a very interesting juxtaposition. Uh, you were talking about this at the beginning, Oscar, like very pre-9-11. This feels like extremely patriotic and not questioning why we're at war at all. You know, the questioning, is it worth sacrificing lives to save this one guy? But they're not questioning, should we be killing people at all? I mean, there's a bit with the Jeremy Davies and the Willie Steamboat character. I think if you compare it to Munich, Munich is like, look at what this does to people. And I know it's like a different, you know, they're assassinating people that are not at war, but Spielberg is considering the impact of taking lives and war and trauma and nations at battle. You know, as I was looking it up, I saw it was like 93% on Rotten Tomato. I'm like, what asshole critic is not going to say this is a good movie? Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically that's what, you know, if you look at it, that's what the people are complaining about. They're like very jingoistic. It's very nationalist. It's like they don't get into the nuances of anything. It's just sort of, you know, a love letter to the World War II greatest generation. Um, without questioning anything they've done. So I think that there is something to be said for that. I think it is a movie that deserves to be revisited, especially here on its 20th anniversary. And um, on the same token, Schindler's List turns 25 this month and is actually back in movie theaters. So if you get a chance, try and catch that in the theaters uh, this December nice. as well. Uh, what's that runtime? Three and a half hours? A little, I think it's like a three and change, something like that. It's not that much longer than this film. Honestly. That's an expensive babysitter right there. <laughs> There's probably a pretty good chance that there was a time when we were juniors in college where we watched these two movies back to back, right, Brian? I know we at least did Schindler's List and Braveheart back to back one time. I bet you we probably did this and <laughs> We did Schindler's List and Save It, Private Ryan, because that's the sort of thing we used to do. Just to say that we did. <laughs> Fueled by Domino's Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. All right, guys. Well, this has been a real fun time. Brian, we'll have you back for, for something. Peruse that list and tell us what you think uh, you'd like to lend your 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 brain to. Waiting for yeah, Field of Dreams to crack the list. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't think that's happening, although there's an (laughs) argument to be made. Anyway, this has been great. This has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, guys. Bye, guys. Goodbye.